Hello, check one. Well, thanks for that. Um, and good morning. It really is a, a pleasure to, to be here this morning, and um, I think I can safely say to, to already feel at home, even among uh, mostly strangers. Um, so thank you for that. Yes, um, so I will be speaking this morning, obviously, and then for the next few weeks, and I'm looking forward to each week. Um, but as I reflected what I ought to speak on, what passages we ought to look at this Christmas season, I really felt drawn to the book of Luke in particular. Um, and then within Luke, even some of the, the minor characters or the stories that wrap around the narrative of Jesus' birth. And then even within those stories, more specifically, the, the narrative of Zechariah. It's easy to skip over some of these narratives as the ones that we don't recognize from the Christmas play but they are significant and wonderful, and they have their place. Um, yeah, they have their place in the Christmas season. And I think what we see in the overarching narrative of Zechariah is we see him moved from um, doubt and disbelief and self-focus through a season of God's discipline in his life to trust and deliverance and exaltation and to joyful song. And I think, wouldn't it be wonderful if God did something similar um, in us in the next few weeks? To land us in a few weeks in a new, a new sense of worship, in a new joyful song to Jesus for all that he accomplished for us in coming. So let's pray for that. As Father, we ask for you to be here with us. We ask for you to open our, our, our eyes to the magnificence of the fact that you came for us. Would you allow us to worship you in a new way? Would you rid us of doubt? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so in the book of Luke, chapter 1, starting in verse 5, and I believe that it'll there it is. Well, wow, look at that. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And I'm actually going to stop there just because I think that, that after only three verses, um, we, will, we will get to more of the passage today, don't worry. Um, but after only three verses, we get this really significant um, snapshot of the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, primarily in that there is this sort of high praise for Zechariah and Elizabeth, that they are righteous and walking in all the statutes of God. Um, but then secondly, that they're serving faithfully, they're doing this in spite of an incredibly difficult circumstance. Um, and I think it's hard enough uh, today when couples struggle to have children, um, but would have been massively more so in their context. In a context when having a child was your social security, your political security in many ways, um, and also in a culture where not having children could be, could be seen as, as condemnation, was worthy of reproach. So they're serving faithfully, and they're walking with God but they're doing so despite difficulty. 
And I think that's just a really a significant place to start and a significant sna snapshot that comes very quickly, right? There's only a few verses, but a lot is said in that. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And this next verse is where we're going to focus. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So here we have Zechariah in the temple, serving faithfully, selected as the one to go in to the holy place where the, the table of incense was. Um, and incense throughout scripture represents prayer. And so as Zechariah enters into this place in the temple, he is representative of the whole multitude of people praying outside for, for deliverance and for salvation. And then an angel shows up, an angel just meaning messenger, angelos, messenger, a messenger from God shows up and gives him this incredible proclamation and says, his prayer is answered, he has been heard. And not just that, but the whole multitude of people outside that their prayer is answered too, because he's gonna have a son and his son is gonna run before God himself. He's gonna prepare people for the Lord. And then we get to this last line. And Zechariah says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And so he, he questions and he doubts. And as you read on, even in the, the first chapter of Luke, you see Mary's story. And Mary also receives a pronouncement that she is going to have uh, a baby, but her response is very different. And so Luke sets it up brilliantly, and we don't have time to read all of that this morning, but Luke sets it up brilliantly to contrast Zachariah's faithlessness, Zachariah's doubt, with Mary's faithfulness. And so the, the two are, are set up, it's like a literary foil almost. The, the two are meant to be seen as backdropped against each other. And what we see in that contrast between Zechariah and Mary is that Zechariah's response is basically, prove it. How do I know? It's a, it's a deep skepticism. It's a deep doubt. And so this week, I actually want us to look at the character of Zechariah's doubt. And there's four points. Aha. Uh -huh. that's, that's great. I love when that happens. Um, the first one is this. Doubt is perennial, which just means always existing in fallen humanity, in the human condition. 
The second is that doubt is remote from reality, that it ignores the evidence. And we're gonna look at some ambiguity in the term doubt because we kind of use doubt in different ways in our culture. And the third one is that doubt is self-focused and it's often based in personal insecurity. And that doubt is based on a failure to imagine God's grace and goodness. It's founded in a theological error of sorts. So there's lots to learn from Zechariah and from even this section of his narrative. But let's get into it. Starting with uh, the first point that doubt is perennial, that it's always existing in fallen humanity. And as I said, there's this interesting parallel between Zechariah and Mary, but beyond that, the character of Zechariah has another really interesting biblical parallel in the, the figure of Abraham. Abraham being, of course, the, the patriarch of Israel, the one to whom the initial covenant, the old covenant, the Old Testament was given, God's promise to redeem Israel through Abraham, to redeem the world even through Abraham and his offspring. And there's a fascinating parallel between our narrative this morning and the narrative of Genesis 16. Um, and in Genesis 16, Abraham is promised a child, and for a time, uh, him and his wife Sarah are faithless. They, they fail to believe that God can provide them a child. So the Old Covenant, the Old Testament in many ways, begins with a story of an old man failing to believe that God can give him a child. And then the New Testament, this section we have of Luke, is quite possibly the, the first historical point on, along the road of the New Testament. Um, the New Testament begins with an old man... <laughs> failing to believe that God can give him a child, a promised child. And I don't think that that's accidental. I don't think that Luke included this narrative for no reason. I think that that is meant to demonstrate something to us, and that that parallelism between Zechariah and Abraham would have been very present in the mind of Luke's readers. I think it's meant to demonstrate something that is simple but profound, and it's that doubt is a part of our lives that doubt is perennial in the human condition, that doubt is the baseline, and that faithfulness is the exception, that even the very good and the very faithful, like Abraham and Zechariah, that they doubt. And even um, as part of the passage that was read this morning from Galatians, even, where, where later in the New Testament, people comment on what the law accomplished, what, what the Old Testament accomplished, and what Paul argues is that the Old Testament, or rather the law, could not produce righteousness. And I think in that Abraham, this character at the beginning of Israel's history, and Zechariah, this character sort of, sort of at the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the new proclamation, the new covenant with God's people, we see that it demonstrated that the law did not accomplish righteousness. And those are some big theological concepts, so if that is intriguing to you, dive into Romans 7 at some point, or, or the latter chapters of Galatians. But we won't, we won't go into that too much. Regardless, our, our main point is that doubt is perennial, that it's the baseline of human life. So that's not a particularly uplifting uh, first, first point, but, but where does that leave us? Because Luke does not leave us there in the least. What Luke makes absolutely explicit um, through the whole book of Luke's and into the book of Acts is, is a simple thing, but it's that faith is a gift from the Spirit of God. 
that those who recognize who Jesus is have the Spirit of God. There's a few examples quickly in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 42. Elizabeth, you, if you remember the story, Elizabeth recognizes Mary and that Mary is pregnant and that Mary is pregnant not just with any baby but with the Messiah. And it says that she is filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed. Right? That's the key point. Simeon, another character in Luke 2, when Jesus is presented at the temple, gives this incredible prophecy, both of how Jesus ties up all these loose ends from the Old Testament and even aspects, predicts aspects of his life and death on the cross. And it says in a matter of only two verses that he's filled with the Holy Spirit four times. In Luke 167, Zechariah himself when he gives this joyful song that we're heading to in a few weeks, it says, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. It's a simple point, but the point being that those people who know who Jesus is are filled with the Spirit. That faith is a gift of the Spirit of God. And as a qualification to that, by the way, I'm not saying that faith is something that is irrational, that you just have to like wait and God's gonna throw it at your head and then like, then you'll get it. That's, that's not it at all. I, I really, truly believe that, that reason pushes us towards God, um, but that the final ascent of our hearts um, awaits the Spirit. And that this has in itself, we're kind of going to do application along the way with these points, that this has significant implications for the Christian life, that we're meant to rely on God's Spirit to fill us with faith. There's a, a story in the book of Mark, Mark 9, and there's a, a man with a son who's, who's afflicted, who's sick, um, and he says to Jesus, can't you do anything? Can, if you can do something, please heal my son. And Jesus responds, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I think in recognizing that faith is a gift of the Spirit of God, that the prayer, I believe, help my unbelief, can be or even should be a part of our lives as Christians, that we should be regularly turning to God, asking to be filled with his Spirit. So that's just our first point. Are you tracking with me? Um, moving quick this morning, because I think there's a lot in this little narrative. Second point is this. Doubt is remote from reality, that it ignores the evidence. And as I, I said, there's some ambiguity in the way that our culture uses the word doubt. And so I do want to just make a distinction between what I would call truth-seeking doubt and testing and doubt that ignores the evidence, which is what we're dealing with this morning. Um, because testing or questioning what's in front of you, doubting in that sense is encouraged in the New Testament. Paul explicitly encourages it, actually. Um, whereas doubt that ignores the evidence is, is what we're aiming to, to discuss and to eliminate in our lives in many ways. Um, but this is where critics of Christianity will, will kind of get in and say, well, see, if, if you think doubt is a sin, then you're against free inquiry. You're against asking questions. You're, you're against... Um, truthfulness in many ways. And I think that's, ju that's just not the case because the doubt that we're dealing with is not, is not testing, is not questioning, is not truth-seeking doubt, but it's doubt that ignores the evidence. 
And Zechariah ignores the evidence. Right? In, in our story, Zechariah, who is a Jewish priest, meaning that his life was soaked in the narratives of Genesis and other points in the Old Testament where the childless are given children. Zechariah, who had knowledge of Abraham's story, and who, I mean, it's almost, there's an irony to it. He's talking to an angel, right? Um, there's one message I, I saw on this passage, and it, the title was just, How Not to Talk to an Angel, um, which I think is, is quite funny. But he still doubts and, and ignores the evidence in front of him. And I think the problem is, and the trap or the cycle that we get stuck in, is believing that, that we're better than Zechariah. That if God just gave us a sign, if God just gave us the evidence, that we're just waiting for that one little bit. You know, we're, we're this close to believing, but we just need that little bit of evidence. And it's a trap and a cycle that we get stuck in in our, in our spiritual lives. But what I think we should learn from Zechariah's story is that we shouldn't underestimate our capacity to doubt. We shouldn't underestimate our blindness. We shouldn't forget how deeply doubt is sown into our fallen hearts. There's a really wonderful book by the author of Philip Yancey called Disappointment with God. And if the words disappointment with God resonate with you, um, I'd encourage you to go find that book because it's gracious and full of scripture and wonderful. But part of what Yancey does is he looks at Old Testament scripture and he sees Israel's narrative and he looks at points in scripture where there's literally manna falling from the sky or, or coming out of the ground every morning and they're being led by a pillar of fire during the day and a, and a pillar of cloud at night. And like two years ago, they were taken through the Red Sea, like they watched the ocean part for them and they walked through and he says, and yet, they were faithless, almost constantly. Like, it's, it's a remarkable narrative to realize that everything that God does for them, and they are still just clumsy. I don't even know what the word is. They're, they're, they still so constantly break faith with God. And I think the, the point that Yancey makes and that I want us to see this morning is that like Israel or like Zechariah, when we struggle with doubt, we aren't doing so because we lack evidence. We aren't doing so because we need another sign. Because Jesus was the great sign. Jesus was the full revelation of God's character and love. And if Jesus coming for you, if Jesus dying on the cross and being raised again, doesn't convince you, it's hard to know what will. And that's a heavy thing. But I think it's important for us to remember that as Christians, when we doubt, we aren't lacking evidence. We're just, we're lacking eyes to see clearly. I think Jesus makes this claim almost explicitly in the narrative in Luke 16, and if you're familiar with it, um, there's a story between Lazarus, um, a beggar, and a rich man. And it's a, a long and complex parable that, again, we don't have time to go into this morning, but 
I'd encourage you maybe this week to look into it. Um, but essentially what happens is that um, Lazarus, the beggar, finds himself in, in heaven um, with Abraham, and the rich man finds himself in, in Hades, or what we might call hell, and he looks up and he says, Abraham, can you just please go send Lazarus to warn everyone? You know, warn my brothers, warn my, warn my extended family so that they don't end up where I am. And Abraham responds, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Right? And I think that, that that's exactly our point. That the evidence required for faithfulness is sufficient. That even those in the Old Testament had sufficient evidence, and we who have the Gospels have the full revelation of Jesus. It's sufficient for us to believe. And again, I, if you're here or you're listening and you're seeking faith and you're asking who Jesus is, um, please don't take this as me telling you that, you know, you already should know everything. That's not it at all. Um, seek faith. Read the Word of God. Um, ask hard questions. Absolutely do all of that. Um, but know that God is gracious to us and that he doesn't ask us to believe anything he doesn't provide evidence for. And the evidence is sufficient for faith in Jesus. And that doubt, on the other hand, ignores the evidence. All right, that's our, that's our second point. Point three, Zechariah's doubt is self-focused or based in personal insecurity. You know, it's really interesting. It's almost like... This is, it's, it's a tacky illustration, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, you could compare Zechariah to someone, a man, and he, and he prays for a loaf of bread. And then God comes along and says, okay, I'll, uh, I'll give you your, your loaf of bread. By the way, when you eat your loaf of bread, shortly after, yeah, I'm going to end world hunger. And the man responds, are you sure you can give me a loaf of bread? As if that was the really fantastic part of the story. Right? Like, as, as if that was the shocking part. That was the part that he should have doubted. Because Zechariah doesn't question whether or not God is going to come redeem Israel. He questions if he's too old to have a kid. And I think there's something interesting in that. That, like Zechariah, the part that we often get stuck with is ourselves. The part that I get stuck on is me, the part that you get stuck on is you. We believe that God is gracious to us, but we struggle to apply that grace to our own lives and our own sin. We believe that God can heal, but we struggle to believe that God will heal us. We believe that God uses ordinary people to do incredible things, but we, we're, we're too ordinary. We don't believe God can use us. And that's just to say that doubt is where personal circumstance and personal insecurity grow so large in our lives that they trump the promise of God in our lives and the reality of who God is and all that he's accomplished for us. And that ties directly into our final point this morning, which is this, that Zachariah's doubt is based on a failure to imagine God's grace and power, God's grace and goodness, 
that it's based in a theological error. When we get to the line that Zechariah says, excuse me, how shall I know this or prove it? I think our, our hearts are meant to break a little for Zechariah. Because I think if we look at the carefully selected detail that Luke gives us about Zechariah's life, then we can imagine at least that this is where the hardship of his years of childlessness comes through. That this is where the hardness of his heart after years of trying to have children, after years of felt defeat, after years of what felt like unanswered prayer. That Zachariah just couldn't imagine God's grace to him. What's interesting is that and it might, be, it might be somewhat incidental, but I think it's, it's interesting nonetheless, is that the name John means graced by God or gift of grace. And that essentially, in the moment, Zechariah cannot comprehend. He can't even imagine God's grace to him. I wasn't sure if I was going to give this next illustration, but... Um, I'm, I'm bad with pop culture references, so bear with me. There's, I mean, the Grinch movie, yeah, where his heart grows three times bigger. Um, that's, that's what Zachariah needed, and that's what we need. Because until God does a work in our hearts by showing us himself, we're stuck in that misunderstanding and doubt. And I'm not sure what the words theological error conjure up for you, but I, I use them intentionally in this point. Um, because I think sometimes we think of theology as something like distant from real life and b bookish at best, and at worst, like the cause of a lot of strife and bickering. Um, but theology is just the knowledge of God. And we all have theology. We all have a theology, and we all act on a theology. And the reason to study theology isn't because it looks good on a bookshelf, it's because everything we do and say and believe in life is based on our vision of who God is. Right? And so good theology is the beginning of faithfulness and worship. Good theology is the beginning of faithfulness and worship. And when the rubber meets the road in life when temptation comes, when difficult circumstance comes. Our capacity to stand faithfully will be based on how closely we hold, how well we know the truth of who God is and what he's accomplished for us. So that's why we study theology. And this is what it says in Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? So I didn't, I didn't make that part up. Um, application, I think, is somewhat simple or unsurprising on a Sunday morning to be asked to read your Bible, to be asked to spend time with God, thinking deeply about who God is and what he accomplished for you. If you're a reader, then find a good work of Christian theology. Find a copy of Knowing God by J.I. Packer or Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey that I mentioned earlier, or, I mean, that's, there's, there's a lot of them, not just two.
So let's, let's summarize where we've been. A doubt is perennial that it's always existing in fallen humanity and the human condition. So pray for God's spirit to fill you with faith. That doubt is remote from reality, that it ignores the evidence, but that Jesus rose from the dead, so the evidence is sufficient. That doubt is self-focused and often based in personal insecurity. So look to God's power, not your own insufficiency. And that doubt is based on a failure to imagine God's grace and goodness in a theological error. So get to know God's word and seek proper theology. As we close this morning, I actually want us to loop back to an earlier part of our narrative that we we read, but I kind of skipped over. And, and I, I had said before that Zechariah was tasked in the temple with offering the incense. And I said that incense throughout scripture is a symbol of the prayers of the people of God rising up to God. And that it says the whole multitude was outside and Zechariah was their representative inside. And so when the angel shows up and says, your prayer has been heard, before we read the rest of what happens, there's this ambiguity, like, like whose prayer? Like Zechariah's prayer or Zechariah representing Israel? And we know from what the angel proclaims that it's both. That Zechariah's prayer is answered, that he is going to have a son, he's going to have a child. But also that Israel's prayer is answered, that the whole multitude, that their prayers are answered as well because his son is going to run before God and God is going to come and visit visit his people to redeem the world. And so what I hope, what I hope for us this morning is that when we read the words, your prayer is heard, your prayer is answered, that we can feel that deeply as well, that we can recognize that we are a part of that praying multitude, that we can feel and know that our prayers are answered in Jesus. Because I don't know if God will move in a specific circumstance that you're praying for lately, but I do know that our prayers are answered in Jesus, that the desire at the center of our desires, that the longing at the heart of our longings, that the need at the depth of our need is answered in the coming of Jesus into the world. That when God in the person of Jesus took on flesh, when he took on humanity and tried our fragile and fading and sinful lives to his eternal life and his righteousness so that all who believe in him can have eternal life with him, that in that our prayers were answered. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would be among us this morning. That you would help us to do the difficult thing of looking to you, even maybe in a difficult circumstance. You would help us to realize how fully you answered 
all of our prayers at the incarnation, at the birth of Jesus. Would you give us a vision of you, a vision of your grace and your inexhaustible goodness? Would we sense the nearness of your grace in the fact that you came to us? God, give us eyes to see that. May we realize that you have offered us everything we need to believe in you. May we cease to doubt your goodness, remembering that you already offered us a beautiful and complete revelation of yourself, a complete sign of your character and your faithfulness to us in the birth and life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Amen.